welcome to this month's Archimedes, the evidence-based podcast from the Archives of Diseases of Childhood. This month it's a little bit different as we've got an interview with one of the Archimedes authors and a little snippet of evidence-based goodness. There's a long-honoured tradition in a number of specialities and subspecialities that is of knowing the landmark trials. These are the studies that demonstrated that something works or that some method is better than another method. But landmark trials are bunkum. There's a couple of problems with landmark trials. Firstly, the general rule is that the earliest trials in a subject show much greater effects than the later ones. It's been demonstrated in a fair few examples, including there's a classic from 1998 that demonstrates that the the time for positive trials to get into publication is approximately half that of the negative trials, if the negative trials get into publication at all. Accordingly, the ones that come out first that show that superdrug works are likely to be positive and likely to be more positive than the other trials. They'll also be around for longer and so more likely to actually get cited. And so being more cited, they're more likely to then generate citations and it, and it goes on and on and on. And that sort of pattern becomes problematic and means that the landmark trial, the one that said superdrug works, often hugely exaggerates what superdrug really does. There's an amazingly good paper that takes a series of landmark studies, that is, papers that had been cited for over a thousand times, and then looked to see what subsequent studies had shown. In this, only 44% of the uh, landmark trials stood up in the end, and over half of them, subsequent studies showed either the opposite direction effect or much, much smaller direction of effect than is spotted in the first place. I guess... I do like landmark trials to some extent in that what they tell us about is the history of a subject and the way that it's been worked. But that's all they do. Landmark trials are for the historian in us. For the clinical researcher, we really need to look for systematic reviews. So this part of the Archimedes podcast this month is me interviewing uh, Professor Sally Kinsey and Dr. Meni Rompola. I'm actually interviewing in the hospital, so we might get ambulances, small children, um, angry Yorkshiremen in the background. So apologies in advance for if we get interrupted in that way. So, Meni, are paediatric oncology patients at risk of transfusional iron overload? Your scenario was of a three-year-old girl being treated for ALL who'd received multiple transfusions of blood, sorry, red cells, um, and platelets over the time. But she was one of four kids and the older children, or one of the older children, had had beta thalassemia. And as part of beta thal, had received many red cell transfusions, but the mum had always been talked about iron overload and the need for iron collation. But this didn't come into the conversation when her younger child, being treated for ALL, was having multiple transfusions as well. Can you tell us about that clinical question and how you went to find the evidence? So it was a very interesting point and I tried to find if there was enough evidence about iron overload in the cancer population of children. So I did search on all Ovid Medline databases, which yielded about 123 results. After reviewing them, there were some extra studies that were added on to that, but in the end only 11 had similar methods quantifying the iron overload which were included in my review. And what was the quality of those studies like? 
There is great uncertainty on this topic in the literature, and it's been very widely reported with different cutoffs of transfusional hemoglobin, different measurements. Most studies use serum ferritin, which is an easy and cheap way of measuring iron overload. Uh, other studies used MRI imaging, and only one used the gold standard, which is the liver biopsy. Uh, most studies just followed serial serum ferritins, which is what happens generally in a population to look at iron overload and watching the trend. It's moderately strong evidence that children undergoing chemotherapy, when they reach the cutoff of about 10 transfusions, are at increased risk of iron overload, and weak evidence that MRI findings of changes in the liver are purely related to iron overload. Okay, so you've got these 11 studies that are of moderate quality that show us that when children get more transfused, they're more likely to have iron loading within their liver. Do we presume that they also have iron loading in other areas as well, like their heart? It has been very poorly reported, conclusions about the areas of deposition of iron overload. However, children undergoing chemotherapy are already at increased risk of iron overload through toxic effects of the chemotherapy itself. And then we go and top them up with a lot of packed red cells. And the studies that I reviewed have shown that uh, serum ferritin remains elevated for years after the end of treatment. So what would you say your clinical bottom lines are? So um, children undergoing chemotherapy are at risk of iron overload. And the consensus throughout the studies was that the higher the intensity of treatment chemotherapy-wise that you're receiving, the more the total transfused volume that you require is likely to be and the more at risk you're likely to be of iron overload through that. And obviously the gold standard of investigation for iron overload remains the liver biopsy, but there have been moderately good results with MRI and ferritin trends can be used to monitor iron overload in these patients. So if you've got paediatric oncology patients you should be monitoring their ferritin in in some way at some point. Yes, but that has not been defined and has not been based on evidence as of date. Professor Kinsey, as a general job in paediatrician, then I think generally we sort of know that iron overload isn't good for people, but it's a really sort of rare and uncommon thing to come across in in normal paediatric practice. But within... Hematology, more broadly, iron overload is something that you worry about with particular groups. Could you sort of give us a a brief summary of why we need to worry about this and how we should think about iron overload? There are two main groups of patients who have been looked at in some detail. Firstly, those are patients having transfusion iron requirement because they have a genetic uh, condition, so they're not making uh, haemoglobin, i.e. beta thalassemia major, which is the commonest. Uh, but also some of the rare red cell uh, aplasias. The other group of patients are the patients who've had bone marrow transplantation, and these are children who will have had a lot of chemotherapy treatment if they are having a transplant for an oncological diagnosis or if they're having a transplant for beta thalassemia. Those patients have been identified by long-term follow-up groups monitoring patients who've, who've had transplants and may have had previous chemotherapy, that they still have very high serum ferritins, and is there something that we should be doing about this? And the answer is that yes, we should. We know from studies in beta thalassemia major that iron overload is very important, particularly in the myocardium, in the liver, in the endocrine glands, with a very high incidence of uh, diabetes mellitus, hypothyroidism, hypogonadism, infertility, etc. So it is very important. 
The easy way to monitor total body iron is to look at the serum ferritin. But serum ferritin, of course, is an acute phase reactant, which is why it's quite difficult using that as a monitor in a child who is on treatment for a malignant disease because they're going to be having intermittent uh, fevers, which is going to impact on the ferritin level. MRT2 star scanning is the gold standard in, from radiological monitoring of patients with iron overload in the myocardium and in the liver. And there has been work done comparing the data that you get from T2 star MRI and liver biopsy that shows a very tight correlation. And so it is possible now to use T2 star MRI imaging for measuring total body iron or at least hepatic and cardiac iron. But these patients need to be able to lie still in an MR scanner and we don't like to give children additional general anaesthetics unnecessarily so we usually have to wait till the child is eight years of old age. So up until that time we are monitoring their ferritin to keep an eye on things. So for a jobbing paediatrician it's very important and the, one of the the one group of patients that we need to take great care about is ensuring that a child with a mild anemia with hypochromic microcytic red cell features truly has iron deficiency before we start treating them because they may have beta thalassemia trait. And in the family that uh, we have in this scenario, there's a 50% chance of a sibling of a child with beta thalassemia major having beta thal trait. So we need to be very careful about what we're transfusing. What's the issue with a child with beta thal trait? Well, an individual with cell trait will have normally a haemoglobin somewhere around about 90-95 grams per litre and hypochromic microcytic red cells. So you look at it and you think that's, that's iron deficiency? Yeah, so some people may just immediately put child on iron supplements yeah. but you need to think about ancestral, ancestral background and looking for haemoglobin A2 on haemoglobin electrophoresis uh, to identify if they are a beta cell carrier or not. But if you did give them iron, surely they'd just get rid of it again if they don't need it? Well, human beings don't get rid of iron, that, and that's one of the problems. The uh, iron homeostasis is very tight indeed, and we only lose iron by overt bleeding, by shedding of skin and shedding of cells from the gut mucosa. Otherwise, it's very tight. Individuals with beta thalassemia also take more dietary iron out of the gut and therefore they can tend to overload a bit. So we don't complicate things by adding in more iron. So it's very important. So you've got this pattern where you're seeing patients who have been multiply transfused, they've got high levels of iron and in the paediatric post-transplant patients we're certainly seeing this happening. And so those patients would be in a similar sort of zone as the patients with beta thal major or other multiple transfusions where you'd be using iron chelation. Is there enough sort of evidence with taking it back to the paediatric oncology population that if we see patients with high ferritin levels off treatment we should be introducing iron chelation for them or is it such a different pattern and they won't be keep carrying on being transfused in later life and they, they might have been treated when they were younger rather than older should we be thinking we definitely need to collate these patients or can we leave them to get rid of their own iron slowly by shedding skin cells and having the odd nosebleed over time and it will drift down without causing them further problems? I don't think we know the answer to all of those questions but I think what this Archimedes 
report has identified is that this is an issue that we need to take care about. We need to look and follow up patients who've had more than 10 transfusions to see what is happening to their serum ferritin and to make sure that there are no issues with cardiac iron and hepatic iron. And this really does deserve a, a proper multi-centre study to look at this. Waiting until long-term follow-up five years after the end of treatment for uh, malignant disease is a bit too late because the damage may have, have, have happened by then. But we need to see whether there are groups of patients who can be started on potentially oral iron chelation to reduce well, total body iron so that we're not setting up patients to have longer-term problems with liver, heart and endocrine issues in later life. Thank you very much, Professor Kinsey, Dr. Rampola. It's been lovely talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. Until next month, thank you for listening and goodbye.